hello, everyone, and welcome to the first official episode of The Writ Podcast. I'm Eric Grenier, and I'm really happy to uh, be starting this podcast and The Writ website, which we launched last week. Uh, I was really happy, really touched by the response, and I'm hoping that we can have a lot of fun with this site, with this podcast over the next months, maybe years to come. We'll see. So I wanted to start with just a little bit of an explanation of what to expect from this podcast. Now, I was the host of the the pollcast for uh, pretty much an entire election cycle between 2015 and 2019, and it was a lot of fun. It was one of the things I enjoyed doing more than anything else at the CBC. What was great about the pollcast was it was the opportunity to really delve into some topics uh, that were largely about polls or about elections in a lot of detail, in a way that was just not possible to do, you know, in a five-minute hit on TV or a hit on the radio. Now, here on the RIT podcast, it is going to be a little bit different. I'm not always going to have a guest like today. It's just going to be me and you. But I'm hoping that over the course of the coming months and, uh, like I said, the coming years, can develop maybe a stable of some regular guests that that you appreciate, that like to come on uh, the show and can join me with uh, discussing some of these topics. So you might have heard that the House of Commons has adjourned, and the good news is we'll be back on September 20th. Or maybe not. There might be an election. And there might be an election sooner than later. If you're just looking at where the polls are right now, the Liberals are in a very good spot. Uh, They lead by a little bit more than six points over the Conservatives. We've seen some polls that have had them quite a bit further ahead of the Conservatives than other polls, but... I think in general, if you're looking at the average, probably talking about a lead of somewhere between five and seven points over the Conservatives. Now, they won a minority government with a deficit of one point in the last campaign. Uh, So being five to seven points ahead uh, is certainly a good place to be. And especially when you look at the regional breakdowns of the numbers. Four-point lead for the Liberals in British Columbia, 10-point lead in Ontario, which is pretty much the ball game. A six-point lead in Quebec over the Bloc Québécois. And in Atlanta, Canada, of course, they have that 19-point lead over the Conservatives. You put those four regions of the country together, the Liberals can probably win a majority government with just that. Now, there had been some speculation that the Liberals would want to maybe call an election at the end of August for late September, early October vote. But I'm really wondering whether they're going to wait for that. That's a long time still. That's almost two months from now to wait before calling an election. Things are very good for the Liberals right now. Uh, The vaccination campaign, the second doses, are likely to come to an end. Uh, That campaign to get everybody at least their second dose by the end of July. Uh, The Conservatives right now are looking pretty weak in the polls. They're looking pretty weak when it comes to Aaron O'Toole's own popularity. The Greens are in the midst of turmoil. Uh, Do they just want to go sooner rather than later and get done? Now, the electoral calendar is... A little bit complicated. Uh, There is an election upcoming in Nova Scotia, and there was some speculation that the Nova Scotia election could be called in the summer before the federal election, and the federal election would follow that vote. Uh, Now, the Nova Scotia Liberals and the federal Liberals are affiliated parties. Uh, The Liberals do have affiliations with those Atlantic Canadian parties, Uh, so undoubtedly they're working together to make sure that they can choose the right dates for uh, going to the polls in Nova Scotia and across the country. But, you know, that is something that's going to be taken into account. There are some municipal elections in the fall. 
And uh, then when we get into next year, we're talking about the Ontario election in June of 2022 and the Quebec election in October of 2022. So we'll see. We'll see what's going to happen here. Anything can happen over the next few weeks. If there is, let's hope there isn't, but if there is a fourth wave, you could see that uh, the appetite for an election call goes away very quickly. Or if the polls start to turn against the Liberals. We haven't seen any indication to believe that that's going to happen in the short term, but you never know. So be something to keep an eye on. But if we do go to the polls in the next few weeks, uh, that'll be a lot of fun to cover here on the podcast and on the website. Topic number two, incumbents not running for re-election. I wrote about this on the website on Monday after Catherine McKenna made her announcement that she would not be running again as the uh, liberal candidate for Ottawa Centre, which she first won in 2015. Now, that's not a riding Ottawa Centre that is very likely to flip. It is a pretty safe liberal riding. Uh, McKenna won it by about 20 points in the last election. The NDP holds it at the provincial level, but, you know, the dynamics of that Ontario election campaign in 2018 were pretty specific uh, to that campaign. So I don't think the Liberals will have a trouble holding on to that seat. Whether or not Mark Carney, the former Bank of Canada governor, actually decides to run, I don't think they need him to win that seat. What I wanted to talk about instead is some of the Atlantic Canadian MPs that are not running for re-election, because in Atlantic Canada, incumbency really does matter. In a lot of the parts of the country, it does not really matter. An incumbent MP might be worth a couple points if they're well-known, if they're an effective MP. But generally speaking, incumbents really aren't worth very much, except in Atlantic Canada. It can make all the difference there. We've seen uh, elections where... Someone like Bill Casey ran as an independent in 2008 uh, after being elected as a conservative, and he easily won his riding. We've seen that when a big name runs in Atlantic Canada, huge amount of votes can swing from one party to the next, particularly at the provincial level, uh, where the ridings are smaller, there's fewer voters. It can make all the difference. So there's a couple that I wanted to highlight. Now, recently we heard that Pat Finnegan, who is the Liberal MP, from Miramichi Grand Lake, who was elected in 2015. He's not running again. But perhaps more interestingly, you got Wayne Easter in Mal Peck on uh, Prince Edward Island. He was first elected in 1993. And Jack Harris, the NDP MP uh, for St. John's East. They're both not running. Easter, as I said, he's been there forever. Harris has also been there for a while. He was first elected in 2008. But before that, he was a he was the leader of the Newfoundland Labrador NDP and uh, had a seat in the in the House of Assembly. So he's a big name out in St. John's. Finnegan, he's just been in for two terms, and that was a close riding. It was decided by just about a point in the last election. Um, so that will be one to watch. But the incumbency effect of Wayne Easter leaving and Jack Harris leaving is one that I find interesting. For Malpec, now this is an interesting riding because uh, Easter won it by a pretty healthy margin, about 15 points over the Greens in the last election. Yes, the Greens. The Greens did very well in Prince Edward Island. They formed the official opposition there at the provincial level. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of impact the Greens can have in a federal campaign. Now that the Green brand has been implanted a little bit longer on Prince Edward Island and Wayne Easter is not going to be the name on the ballot. Now, the Greens have been having a bit of leadership turmoil over the last few weeks, which makes me think that they're not going to be particularly um, effective during an election campaign, and maybe particularly in 
Atlantic Canada because Janica Atwin, who crossed the floor from the Greens to the Liberals, was the MP for Fredericton. That was their only seat in Atlantic Canada. And to hold that seat was a big deal for the Greens and to lose it in some circumstances that I'd say do not really reflect all that well on the Green Party. You could you could debate whether Janet Atwin's reasons for crossing the floor were legitimate or not, but I don't know if the way the Green Party reacted to it is really going to help them very much, particularly in Atlantic Canada. So the idea that they could win a seat like Malpec now, I'm not sure about it. And what's interesting is that the Liberals are going to likely have a pretty good candidate, Heath MacDonald, who was a minister in Wade McLaughlin's uh, Liberal government on, in Prince Edward Island. He was even a potential leadership contender for the PI Liberals, who are still leaderless after their election in 2019. Uh, he is uh, interested in that nomination. And so that's a big name that could help the Liberals hold that seat uh, with not much trouble. Uh, Miramichi, we're also seeing the same kind of thing, Miramichi Grand Lake, where Lisa Harris, a former cabinet minister for the provincial liberals and an MLA for the area, is hoping to get the liberal nomination. For the conservatives, Jake Stewart, also former cabinet minister, also an MLA in New Brunswick, running for the conservatives. So two well-known figures will be potentially, if Lisa Harris wins the nomination, running to win Miramichi Grand Lake. So the fact that Pat Finnegan is not there to run again is opening it up to a pretty interesting contest. Jack Harrison in St. John's East, for the New Democrats, that hurts. That That's their only seat they have in Atlantic Canada. And without Jack Harris on the ballot, it's going to be hard for them to win that, I think. We're not seeing strong numbers for the New Democrats in Atlantic Canada in the polls. Jack Harris carried a lot of uh, ballots with him just because of his name. Without his name on that ballot, the NDP is going to be hard. Uh, It's going to be hard for them to hold that seat. And if they don't win St. John's East, they might not have an MP until you get to Montreal. If you're coming from the East. Uh, And that's not great news for the NDP. But great news for us is that this will likely cause a series of by-elections. If uh, Heath McDonald runs for the Liberals, uh, Lisa Harris, Jake Stewart uh, run in Miramichi Grand Lake, they're going to have to give up their provincial seats. So a series of by-elections, and I'm, of course, happy for that. You might not have noticed this because it's not the biggest news story, and outside of Quebec... It's really not much of a news story whatsoever, but Claire Sampson, she crossed the floor to the Quebec Conservatives in the National Assembly. Yes, the Quebec Conservatives. You might be forgiven to not know who the Conservatives are in Quebec. You have never heard of a Conservative Party of Quebec, probably. And that's because the party is really not a big party in Quebec and hasn't been for a long time. Now, the Quebec Conservatives used to be a party of government. They govern the province... Uh, for a a lot of the late 19th century and also had some time in in government uh, in the early 20th century. But the conservatives in Quebec were amalgamated. They merged with the Action Libérale Nationale, which was an offshoot from the Liberal Party, and the conservatives joined with them to form the Union Nationale, Maurice Duplessis, in the mid-1930s. And the Union Nationale was the conservative party in Quebec, uh, straight until the uh, the 1960s. Now, the conservatives in Quebec, after the fall of the Union Nationale government in uh, 1970, 
never really existed. There was very briefly a progressive conservative party of Quebec in the 1980s. But otherwise, there's only this Quebec conservative party that has contested elections uh, since 2012. It's not a big party. It only took 1.5% of the vote in the 2018 election. It ran 101 candidates in 125 ridings in Quebec. Um, but it's it's not really a major player in the Quebec provincial scene. It takes the role of a federalist party, but a conservative party. So a little bit more like the Quebec liberals, but further to the right. Uh, Adrien Pouliot, he's been the leader for the last couple of elections. He stepped down recently and was replaced by Eric Duhem. Now, Duhem is an interesting character because he has had some experience in politics. He's worked in various functions with uh, the Canadian Alliance, the ADQ, uh, the Bloc. He is perhaps better known in Quebec as a little bit of a controversial uh, radio host. He's been part of that talk radio that's very popular, that very conservative talk radio in Quebec City. Uh, he has, uh, re- over the course of the pandemic, he has complained about some of the uh, the measures that are in place and, and been involved in some some of the uh, the protests. So he's really bringing the Conservative Party Quebec into a bit more of a populist direction. And there is some question about what kind of an impact he will have on the next election. But it does seem like now he will potentially have a much greater impact because of Samson. Samson, she was booted from the CAQ, the Coalition Avenir Québec, the government there, after she gave a $100 donation to the Quebec Conservatives. Now in Quebec, $100 is the max. That's the, the rules there. Uh, and because of that, she was booted from the uh, CEQ caucus, and then she decided to sit as a conservative MNA, which would make her the first conservative MNA for nearly a century. Now, her riding is is uh, Iberville, which is in Montérégie. That's to the south and east of Montreal. That's heading towards eastern townships. She took 48% of the vote there. She won it by 30 points. The conservative in the riding had 1.8%. So it's not really a good riding for the Quebec Conservatives. Even the federal Conservatives, they only ever get about 10-12% of the vote in that area. So the idea that Samson is going to win this riding for the Conservative Party of Quebec and that they will continue to have MNAs in the National Assembly after the next election might be a little far-fetched. But the question is now, can Duhem be as ignored? as the Conservative Party has been in recent elections. Leger, in a poll that they conducted back in April and May, so before, long before this recent story, had the Conservatives at about 6% in Quebec, which isn't a lot, but they're at second place in the Quebec City region with about 14%. They were second place, but they were 38 points back of the CAQ, so I don't think the CAQ is worried about losing seats to the Conservatives just yet. But once upon a time, Quebec Solidaire which now has 10 seats in the National Assembly, was polling at about 6%. So the Conservatives could become a force in Quebec. I would say it's unlikely, but they could be a party that uh, doesn't go away, is no longer a minor party. They could potentially be uh, one of the small minor parties, but with representation in the National Assembly, we'll see. But at the very least, these poll numbers... The fact that Samson is sitting as a conservative MNA, does that mean we'll see Duhem at the leaders' debate? That could have an impact. Okay, second segment of the podcast will be polls of the week. 
So in this case, I want to look at some of the polls that came out over the last week and uh, really look at what they're saying about the uh, the landscape. There hasn't been actually a lot of polls that have been out in the last week. One that I wanted to talk about was the one that was published on Thursday by Abacus Data. This poll was conducted uh, June 18th to the 21st. 2,070 people were surveyed online. This one got people talking because the Liberals were at 37% support and the Conservatives were 10 points back at 27%. That's a 10-point lead for the Liberals and really a bit of a shift from what Abacus was showing in the last couple of polls. In the last couple of polls, they had the Liberals ahead by 5 points or 6 points or 3 points, but now 10 points. We'll see if this is an outlier, if this is something that will be corrected in the, in the next poll, uh, but certainly the Liberals would be pretty happy to see a 10-point lead. And for the Conservatives, I think what is most concerning is that they've just been trending downward. If you look at the trend line for Abacus, they were at 32% back in mid-May. They dropped to 31, 29, 29, now 27. Uh, Being around 30% is not good for the Conservatives. Being three points below 30% is very bad for the Conservatives. And the regional breakdowns are not much better. Uh, You would have to look particularly at the results in Ontario. 13-point lead for the Liberals in Ontario. Some of the numbers out West look a little weak for the Conservatives, 33% in the Prairies, 39% in Alberta. Bump those up a little bit, and maybe the Conservatives are closer to that 30% mark. But if they are down by 13 points in Ontario, there's no chance they're winning an election. The problem for the Conservatives is that Aaron O'Toole remains unpopular. Only 19% of Canadians say they have a positive impression of Aaron O'Toole compared to 40% who have a negative impression. That 40% is about the same as Justin Trudeau. 41% have a negative opinion of Justin Trudeau, but 38% have a positive view of him. So for O'Toole to be so far underwater is a big, big, big problem for the Conservatives. And one that is even worse than what happened in 2019. What was really interesting about the Abacus poll is that they put out a comparison of where the numbers stood back in August 2019. So ahead of the 2019 election, at the time, the Liberals were four points behind the Conservatives. They're now 10 points ahead. Justin Trudeau's positive impression rating was 33%. Now it's 38%. But here's the key one for me. Well, there's two key ones, but one key one is the positive impression for Aaron O'Toole, I said, is 19% now. For Andrew Scheer, it was 33%. And he went into that campaign not particularly popular and ended it with very bad numbers. So for O'Toole, he needs to improve his numbers over the course of the campaign and ensure they don't get worse. That's not easy to do. The other key number here is the proportion of Canadians who say they definitely want to change in government. It's down from 53% in August 2019 to 38% today. Another poll that was done was by the Innovative Research Group. Now, this was a combination of three polls that were done in April, May, and June. What was fascinating about it is that Innovative broke it down into seat clusters. So seats that had similar uh, election histories to try to kind of zero in on the seats and what's going to make the big difference here. What I thought was pretty interesting is they had it broken down into a number of categories. One of them was strong conservative seats that were not in the prairies. So this is seats primarily in Atlantic Canada, Ontario, British Columbia. In 2019, the conservatives won these seats by 21 points. Now, according to Innovative, they're down one point behind the liberals. That means that there are some conservative seats that should be pretty safe for the party in places like Ontario and BC that maybe they'll have trouble holding. You saw this also for the NDP, uh, seats that are 
what Innovative has termed swing NDP. So these are the kind of seats that the New Democrats target in every election. They won five of them in the last election. They won 10 of them back in 2015. Uh, they were behind the Liberals by two points in the 2019 election in these ridings. They're now behind by uh, 16 points. Uh, so that's rough for the NDP if they lose some of their seats that they're usually in the running for every election. That gives the Liberals uh, more of a boost that they can add to the gains that they can make off the off the backs of the Conservatives. Because the Conservatives are looking kind of weak in the ridings that really matter. In the ridings that Innovative has called swing ridings between the Conservatives and the Liberals, in Ontario, we're not seeing a lot of shifts. The Conservatives lost those seats by six points in 2019. They're now behind by seven points. So more or less the same, but that's good for the Liberals. They won a lot of those seats. But the swing seats outside of Ontario, the Conservatives won them by five points in the last campaign. They're now behind by 16 points. So you add this all up, you have the Liberals contesting conservative seats that are usually safe you have them holding the swing seats that they won in the last campaign and maybe picking up a couple and also maybe knocking off a few ndp uh, candidates or mps you got yourself a, a majority government there for uh, the liberals so those numbers are pretty good innovative tends to have better numbers for the liberals than other polls uh, so you know you could take that with a little bit of a grain of salt but when you see these numbers broken down this way even if you give back the Conservatives or the NDP a couple points, uh, some of these are, are looking pretty pretty tough for the opposition parties. Now, the last poll I wanted to do is a provincial poll. This was uh, published on, on uh, Monday by Insights West. Now, the poll is a bit older. It was done between May 26th and May 30th. Uh, but it is a poll of the provincial scene in British Columbia. And we don't often get a lot of provincial polls, so I wanted to highlight this one. Insights West has the BC NDP at 42% in British Columbia. Now, that's down six points from the election last year. Uh, the Liberals, though, are also down three points at 31%. So still an 11-point lead for the NDP. So if there was an election today, and there won't be, they have a majority government, they would be reelected pretty safely. Interestingly, though, you know, the NDP had some really strong numbers last year. They had uh, strong numbers for John Horgan, the premier. But in this poll... The NDP was trailing among men. The BC Liberals were ahead among male voters. They were way ahead among female voters. We're seeing this actually in a lot of parts of the country where the progressive party or the center-left party is doing pretty well among women and the center-right party, conservative party, is doing much better among men. So we are seeing this gender divide in Canadian politics. And that's it for Polls of the Week. Every week I want to be trying to answer your questions. I asked for your questions today. Um, I'm recording this on Monday on Twitter. I got a pretty good response, so I had to choose a couple of questions out of this. In the future, you can leave your uh, questions in the comments section under the podcast article on the RIT website. You can tweet at me. I'm at, at EricGreniertw. And you can email me at eric.grenier at therit.ca. Uh, send me your questions, and every week I'll try to answer a few of them. So the ones that I chose for uh, this week, uh, one, uh, the first one I wanted to get to was from James Foster, and he asked, and I quote, who are the most in danger incumbents from all parties if or when the writ drops this summer? Same question, except only in regards to ministers and critics. Now, I wrote at the end of last week something I've been calling the 6% election, which is the idea that the writings that were decided by six points or less are likely to decide the outcome of this campaign. 
they're a good guide to see which writings are the ones to watch. I, I'm not really at this stage seeing any surprise writings. We don't have any big name candidates that are so far coming out that are going to make writings uh, suddenly up for grabs. So if I'm looking at some of the incumbents that are most in danger, you know, I look at the conservatives. It's hard to find some liberals, some new Democrats, uh, maybe some of the bloc that are in that much danger. The bloc could have a couple that could be uh, on the bubble. But I think the conservatives at this stage, where, with the, where the polls are, are probably in most danger. If you look at Ontario, now there's been about a swing of two points in the polls between the liberals and the conservatives to the liberals. So a riding like Aurora Oak Ridge's Richmond Hill, which was decided by two points, Leona Alislev, she was the floor crosser who, before the last election, went from the Liberals to the Conservatives. She was able to get reelected, but by a pretty small margin, and based on where the numbers are in Ontario right now, she could have some trouble getting reelected. Another place to look would be British Columbia. There's been a big shift in British Columbia. It's a hard place to poll. The numbers shift around a lot. Uh, you know, the provincial parties have different dynamics that can maybe bleed into uh, federal voting intentions. But there's been a 10-point swing between the Liberals and the Conservatives to the Liberals. So that means ridings like Port Moody Coquitlam, which was decided by two points, Cloverdale Langley City, decided by two and a half points, uh, even South Surrey White Rock. These are all Conservative seats that could be in danger. So that's Nellie Shin in Port Moody Coquitlam, Tamara Jansen in Cloverdale Langley City, and Carrie Lynn Finley in South Surrey White, White Rock. Uh, Port Moody Coquitlam, also the NDP is in that. So that's a three-way race. And if the NDP is doing well in BC, you could see that conservative seat swing over to the NDP. Uh, elsewhere, if you're looking at Manitoba, Manitoba, we've seen some uh, polls that are suggesting that it's getting a lot closer. The numbers in the prairies as a whole, which includes Saskatchewan, much worse for the conservatives. But in Manitoba, you'd look at a riding like Charleswood, St. James, Assiniboia, Headingley, Marty Morantz. Uh, he won that by five points. Now, for the ministers or critics, there's not a lot of conservative critics that are really well-known that I'd say are in, are in swing ridings at this stage. Uh, but in terms of ministers, the two that I'd, I'd hone in on are Jean-Yves Duclos, who uh, is the uh, president of the Treasury Board. He won the Quebec riding, which is in Quebec City. It's more or less the downtown core riding in Quebec. He won that by just 0.6 percentage points. So if the bloc gets a teeny bit of a bump, uh, that could be enough to uh, defeat Duclos. I'd also look at Diane Leboutillier, who is the uh, Minister of uh, National Revenue. Uh, she won the Gaspésie les Îles de la Madeleine riding by just 1.7 points. Uh, now, this is a rural riding. It's a, um, it's a very francophone riding, and it's a riding where the Parti Québécois has a lot of strength. So you'd think that the Bloc Québécois is going to be targeting that riding. So I'd look at those two uh, as ones that could potentially be on the bubble if the campaign shifts a little bit in Quebec to the benefit of the Bloc. Now, the other question I'm wanting to get to is actually a series of questions because I actually got quite a few um, related to the Maverick Party um, and the potential for the Maverick Party and the People's Party to have an impact on the next campaign. So I got three questions that I'm just grouping together. One's by Kyle Hutton. He asked, what's the expectation for Maverick Party support and or do you think it worthwhile for pollsters to begin prompting them in Western regions? I think that's really interesting. Uh, Patrick Johnson, he asked, are there any ridings where the PPC or Maverick Party could act as spoilers for the Conservatives? And Chris Jaffert, he asked, how likely, given the current polling, are we to see the Liberals to win seats in Alberta or Saskatchewan in the next federal election, assuming the election is called soon? Now, I put that last question in there because I think it is a related question. Now, first off, in terms of the expectation for the Maverick Party, not sure. We have to see how many candidates they're going to run. If they run a full slate in Alberta and Saskatchewan, then they could do 
moderately well. In the Saskatchewan election, the provincial election last year, the Buffalo Party, which is more or less spiritually the same as the Maverick Party, just the provincial version in Saskatchewan, uh, took about 9% of the vote in the ridings where they ran candidates. So that's an interesting number. If the Maverick Party was able to run candidates throughout Alberta and Saskatchewan, could they get up to 10% of the vote? We're seeing in polls that the others, which usually includes the People's Party or is just the others, not all pollsters prompt for the People's Party, is generally about 7 or 8% right now in Alberta. That's a big chunk of the vote, and maybe half of that is for the People's Party and the rest is for the Maverick Party. Um, and that's a vote that would otherwise go to the Conservatives. In some of the polls that we've seen where the Maverick Party has actually been prompted by pollsters, we do get an idea of where their support is. The Angus Reid Institute... In their most recent poll, they had the Maverick Party plus Wexit Canada Party. Um, I'm not really sure why they're including both of those. I don't think the Wexit Party exists. I think it's just the Maverick Party now. But anyway, the combination of those two parties was 7% in both Alberta and Saskatchewan. So that's kind of similar to what we saw for the Buffalo Party in Saskatchewan and suggests that the Maverick Party could end up somewhere between 5 or 10% in those two provinces. Council Public Affairs, they also prompted for the Maverick Party in the recent poll. They had them at 4% in Alberta, 2% in British Columbia, and just 1% in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. So it does show that it's not obvious that the Maverick Party would get over 5% of the vote in Alberta and Saskatchewan if it ran there. What's interesting about the Council Public Affairs poll, though, is that they did break it down a little bit by region, and the Maverick Party was doing 6% in rural Alberta, but just 2% in Edmonton and Calgary. So if we see that they run candidates across uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and maybe BC and Manitoba as well, we could see that they get most of their support in the rural parts, and in the urban centers, they really don't do all that well. Now, in terms of whether they have the ability to spoil the Conservatives, especially in Alberta and Saskatchewan, because if they run candidates BC, Manitoba, not sure if they're going to be as popular as they might be in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Let's take a look as well as the role of the People's Party. Now, the People's Party... Only had 1.6% of the vote in the last election. They they did best in Alberta, but they didn't have much more support there than they did anywhere else. But nevertheless, 2% of the vote could make the difference in a few of these ridings where the incumbents are in danger. I just mentioned them. That People's Party vote, that Maverick Party vote, uh, could play a role. There were seven ridings in 2019 where the margin of loss for the Conservatives was smaller than the share of the vote the People's Party took. So there is a potential for the People's Party to be a spoiler, but that assumes that those voters would vote for the Conservative Party if the People's Party was not on the ballot, rather than just stay home or give their vote to someone else. One of the ones, though, that's, I think, the most interesting, I've already mentioned, actually, Miramichi Grand Lake. The People's Party had 3.4% there. The Conservatives lost by 1.1 points. What's interesting about New Brunswick and the People's Party is that there's the People's Alliance, which is not an affiliated party in any way. But the fact that it exists in New Brunswick has a name that's similar to the People's Party. It does mean that the PPC has an ability to do a little bit better in some New Brunswick ridings. And there could be a couple of them that could be pretty close. So I think the Conservatives would be um, happier if Maxime Bernier's PPC was not on the ballot in ridings in New Brunswick. For the Maverick Party, the thing is, it's hard to imagine that they're going to have much support outside of urban centers, and the Liberals don't have any support outside of urban centers. So there's not really the possibility that if the Maverick Party takes 10, 20% of the vote in rural Alberta, that anybody but the Conservatives would still win it. It is possible that if they run in Calgary or Edmonton, that if they even capture 2% of the vote, 
potentially that could be enough to make the difference. And maybe the Liberals squeak by in a riding or two in Calgary and Edmonton. Um, but I don't imagine that the storyline after the next election will be that the Maverick Party and the People's Party cost the Conservatives an election. It might have cost them a couple seats, possibly, but not more than that. On the issue of pollsters prompting, this one I think is an interesting one. Um, some pollsters prompt for lots of different parties, including the People's Party. Some do not, and just lump all of those smaller parties into others. If you're doing a telephone poll, you don't need to prompt at all. You can just ask people how they're intending to vote, but no one really does that anymore. What I find interesting is the way that the Angus Reid Institute does it. Uh, from what I can glean from their reports, they prompt for the major parties and then have an others. And if you say others, you're then asked what party you're talking about. I think that's a good approach because it's not people choosing the Maverick Party or the People's Party from a long list that includes the major parties that they're aware of. It's really drilling down into the people who see other major parties and say, no, no, I'm still not voting for them, and then has to choose. Uh, so I think that might be an interesting approach. If the Maverick Party ends up running a full slate in Western Canada, I think it would be hard to justify not including them. I think when a party is a choice for pretty much every respondent, you should probably include them because they could vote for them. It's as simple as that. It's not a case where there's a libertarian candidate in 60 ridings, which means that most Canadians don't get a chance to vote for them. It's a case where with the PPC, they ran in 93% of ridings in the last campaign. Most Canadians, the vast majority, had the chance to vote for them. So it feels like you should probably include them in your poll when you're prompting. So I think it should be the same thing with the Maverick Party, because you can then limit it, as they do with Bloc Québécois and Quebec, to just asking Western Canadians if they're going to vote for them. Now, the last question there was about the Liberals in the West. It's hard to imagine the Liberals winning a seat in southern Saskatchewan. The northern seat doesn't they miss the Nippy-Churchill River. That's always a close race between Conservatives, the NDP, and the Liberals, so that could always happen. Um, but winning Ralph Goodale's old seat in Regina or a new seat in Saskatoon, that's hard to see. Alberta, if the polls are accurate then really there could be some seats that the Liberals could win because we've seen a swing of 30 points between the Conservatives and the Liberals in Alberta. Yes, 30 points. I don't really think there's been a swing of 30 points between the two parties in Alberta. Uh, we saw in the last election that the Conservatives were underestimated in the polls in Alberta, and I imagine that could be happening again. But if there is a swing of 30 points, Edmonton Centre, Edmonton Strathcona, Edmonton Mill Woods, Calgary Skyview, and Calgary Centre... We're all won by the Conservatives by 30 points or less. So some of them could swing, but without Liberal incumbents on the ballot like they had in 2019 in, in most of these, it, it will be a bit trickier for the Liberals to hold on to these seats and to win anything between British Columbia and Manitoba. But I'd say their chances of doing that are better than they were in 2019. And that brings us to our final segment. Now, this is the one that is probably the most personally interesting to me, and I'm hoping you will find it interesting too. I'm, I want to do something with the writ, which is maybe the biggest departure from what I, I used to do at CBC and with uh, 308, is I want to delve into the history of elections more. I, my background's in history. I studied history at Queen's University in Kingston. I used to write history articles before I got into writing about politics. So... I kind of want to go back to my roots 
I really enjoy reading about political history in Canada, and I feel that we don't know enough about it. And in my little way, I want to contribute to spreading the knowledge of Canada's political history. So what I'm hoping to do is something I'm calling the Every Election Project, which is a, a bit of a ironic title because there's been hundreds of elections in Canada, the provincial and federal levels, and I don't think I'll live long enough to write up a history for every single election. But I want to try to do as many as possible. So I'll be doing some more detailed write-ups on the website over time. Try to do, my aim is to do maybe one a month, but we'll see uh, how well that goes. But every week I do want to do little capsules of elections, provincial and federal, here on the podcast. So that brings us to today's election. So the one that I'm highlighting is the New Brunswick provincial election that was held on June 27th, 1960. Now, this was really a two-horse race, or pretty much just two parties that you could vote for. There was the incumbent progressive conservatives. They were under Hugh John Fleming, who had been in power in New Brunswick since 1952. The liberals were under the uh, leadership of Louis Robichaud. Now, Louis Robichaud was born in St. Antoine, New Brunswick, and he became leader of the liberals in New Brunswick at the age of 33 in 1958, so just a couple of years before the 1960 election. Like uh, today, this was a time when New Brunswick's politics were heavily influenced by language. The progressive conservatives and the conservatives before them, they had the support of the Anglophone South, and the liberals had the support of the Francophone and Acadian North. And it had more or less been that way for half a century, going back to really the First World War. In lots of parts of Canada, the conscription issue during the First World War really soured Francophones from the conservatives. And it took really several generations for uh, conservatives anywhere to start doing well among Francophones again. Now, Robichaud was able to seize on some discontent with the Fleming government's intentions to impose a uniform premium to pay for health care. Uh, which would be the same amount regardless of how much money you made. And that swung enough English votes in the South to give the Liberals a win because they had that dominance in the Francophone North. The Liberals were able to sweep the seats on the East Coast and also in uh, Ristigouche and Madawaska on the border with Quebec. And they even wrested away a few PC seats in Moncton and the Sudbury and Charlotte counties in the South. Uh, so this was a, a pretty big win for the Liberals. They took 31 seats. It was a swing of 16 seats since the 1956 election. The PCs dropped to 21. The Liberals took 53% of the vote. That was up seven points from 1956. And the PCs took uh, 46%, which was down six points. So this was a big swing to the Liberals. And it was a watershed election because Robichaud's win made him the first Acadian premier in New Brunswick history to win an election. There had been one that had been earlier uh, appointed, but he lost his re-election bid. Robichaud was the first Acadian premier with a mandate of his own. And he really did bring Acadians into New Brunswick politics and into government, a place where they had largely been excluded before. Uh, among other things, Robichaud's government helped found the French-language Université de Moncton, which educated new generations of Francophone leaders in New Brunswick. And he brought in the Official Languages Act, which made New Brunswick an officially bilingual province. Uh, his government also implemented what was called the Equal Opportunity Program, which centralized provincial responsibility for things like education, health care, away from local governments, and it helped standardize and modernize services across the province. So Robichaud would go on to govern New Brunswick for three terms. He was defeated in 1970 by Richard Hatfield's Progressive Conservatives. But his time in office did change New Brunswick politics by bringing Acadians into the political mainstream and showing that the Francophone electorate was one that couldn't be ignored anymore. 
All right. Well, that's it for the Writ Podcast this week. Thanks so much for listening. I'm going to be trying to put this out once a week. I don't have a set day just yet, and uh, I think I'm going to try to keep it that way. But look for them every week in your podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on lots of different places, and on the writ.ca website. If you subscribe to the writ.ca, you'll have full access to all of the content on the website. I will be putting out some bonus episodes of the podcast from time to time, particularly during election campaigns, and subscribers will be the only ones who have access to that. If you would like to support the work that I'm trying to do, please consider subscribing to the writ.ca. If you subscribe over the next 20 five days or so, you can save 15% on the monthly rate or the annual rate, and you'll lock that in forever. And if you just want to listen to the podcast, I'm so happy to have you too. Give me your thoughts. Give me your questions. Let me know what you think about the podcast. Give it a rating. Give it a review. And I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.